The game of baseball has always been something that's been very dear to me. This is always a fun time of the year for me right now with the postseason going on. Uh, get to watch my beloved team, the Rangers, uh, get the sweet today, so that was enjoyable. But I've always enjoyed baseball, playing it when I was younger. Love to take my family to games and watch games when we can. It's a, it's a sport that can challenge the mental toughness from players from time to time. Both hitters and pitchers can find themselves playing their greatest baseball and then immediately find themselves in a slump at any given time. There's uh, arguably no greater slump recorded in Major League Baseball than that of a pitcher by the name of Steve Blass with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Steve Blass played 10 seasons with the Pirates and even helped propel the Pirates to win a World Series in 1971 against the Baltimore Orioles. But it was in 1972, the year after they just won the World Series, it was in 1972 that Blass would hit his slump. He would inexplicably lose control of his pitches. He could not throw a baseball for a strike. His life depended on it. Blass tried every method in the book to get out of this slump. In practices, he tried pitching from his knees. He, he tried pitching from even second base, thinking that would help. He pitched every night in the bullpen, watched video after video of him pitching. He even took on meditation and practiced that. Even when a teammate suggested he wear looser undergarments, he tried that too. But to no avail, Blass would continue to remain in his slump. Eventually, he would be released from the team and would never play baseball again. You know, I read that story on Steve Blass, and it really got me thinking about, you know, as Christians, we often can find ourselves in slumps as well, can't we? You know, not necessarily a pitching slump like Steve Blass, but a spiritual slump, a slump where we can feel deflated and feel ineffective. We tend to feel inadequate and question if we are really making any sort of ministry impact in our lives. We can feel the pressures of the world around us and sometimes even pushes us to questioning our own salvation. Weakened and defeated, that is exactly where Timothy found himself in the first century. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the second letter of Timothy. Second Timothy. Before we consider the verses we'll be looking at this evening, I believe we need to set the context of this book and look at some of the background. It's always a little bit challenging trying to dive in the middle of a book, so I felt it was necessary for us to look a little bit at this background here. This letter, which was written by the Apostle Paul to his beloved protege, Timothy, is writing this from the cell of a prison in Rome. It's often said that when Paul would enter into a new city on his mission he would ask where the nearest prison was rather than the closest hotel because he knew he would eventually find himself in the prison cells. 
But this writing, this letter here, this, this one is different. Much different than the other letters he had ever written from prison. The reason is that Paul is aware that his death was near and there would be no escape or release from prison this time. 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul says this. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This would be the, the, the final letter Paul would ever pen. This is his, his, his epilogue, his swan song, if you will. Paul is essentially passing the torch on in this letter to Timothy with the, with the words that he writes here. And he uses his last moments of his life to write to his son in the faith. Now, it's unclear what exactly was troubling Timothy during the time that he's received this letter. Uh, it's obvious that he was in some sort of slump. One thing is for sure that he was facing a myriad of difficulties and he was not able to free himself from his troubles. That word then traveled and got to Paul in the prison cell. He deemed it necessary to write to his beloved son, Timothy. You know, Timothy could have perhaps felt the pressures of the false teachers of his day while serving in the church of Ephesus. You know, whatever the, the challenge is, that Timothy was facing, it clearly had an effect on him. Enough that Paul address, addresses Timothy's weakness through encouragement and instruction in this final letter. These last words Paul writes are to refresh Timothy's thinking and to charge Timothy to persevere and remember that ministry is spiritual combat. Ministry is spiritual combat, hence the, the book theme here listed. To remind Timothy, Paul writes these disciplines a disciple must carry on, uh, carry on in the thick of the battle. He's instructing his son, be prepared, be ready, because my time is coming to an end soon. He, he wants to make sure that his protege, that his Son, Timothy, is well-equipped and ready for the battle that he's going to face. So these last words he writes to, to encourage him to, to be reminded of those disciplines. So the book breaks down in this way. The, the first three chapters Paul gives are the instructions for spiritual combat. And in chapter 4, we see the commission to spiritual combat. Instructions for spiritual combat, commission to spiritual combat. In chapter 1, Paul opens up with his greetings and his thanksgiving in verses 1 through 5, as he normally would. He then charges Timothy to suffer without shame in verses 6 through uh, 14. And also in chapter 1, in verses 15 through 18, he gives uh, some examples to Timothy of men who were ashamed and not ashamed of the gospel. Now that we've established the background and 
context here. This really sets the stage for where we will be spending the remaining time we have tonight, and that'll be in chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And here is where we will find really the, the heart of that instruction for ministry combat is we'll consider four disciplines of a disciple of Christ, four disciplines of a disciple of Christ. Look at chapter 2 with me, follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So let's take a look at the first discipline of a disciple of Christ, and, and it's to draw strength from Christ Jesus. Draw strength from Christ Jesus. Look back at verse 1. Paul says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, as I mentioned before, at the end of chapter 1, Paul gave some examples of men who were ashamed and not ashamed of the gospel. And Paul points out that all who were in Asia had turned away from Paul. They abandoned him. Among them were two men that he outlines, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Little is known about these two men, but what is clear is that they, they showed a weakness in standing for the truth and perhaps abandoned the true gospel altogether. You know, the apostate preaching and teaching was running rapid in those days, and and so they, they may have turned from the true word of God to the apostate teaching because it was pleasing to them. They turned away from Paul. However, in his examples of the desertion from Phygelus and Hermogenes, Paul contrasts it with a life of dedication through the, the life lived from Onesiphorus. Paul writes in verses 16 through 18 about this man. He, he writes that this, this man, Onesiphorus, often refreshed Paul. He was not ashamed of his brother Paul's teachings, which was the gospel truth. He even sought Paul out when Paul was in trouble and may have encouraged Paul with the word of God. He, he rendered service to the church of Ephesus, and it means that Onesiphorus must have ministered there in the church in some form or fashion long enough that Timothy would have taken notice of that. 
So Paul gives us contrasting examples of spiritually weak and strong men there, and, and then he transitions his thoughts into a direct exhortation to Timothy in verse 1 by saying, you therefore, my son, be strong. Be strong. But notice that Paul doesn't just say, be strong like Onesiphorus. No, that's a, that's a good example of someone who has lived a life of faithfulness. No, Paul says instead, calls Timothy to draw his strength from the source of all believers' strength. And that is a grace that is in Christ Jesus. He uses that present tense word here for be strong. In Greek, that, that word is indunamao. And it's often used in association with Christ being the source of our strength. Philippians 4, 13 Paul uses that same word when he writes. He says, I can do all things through him, meaning Christ, who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ, who in dunamao, who strengthened me. Look at 1 Timothy 1. You don't have to turn very far for this, but 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. Paul uses that same in dunamao, that same word, be, being strong, being strengthened, it's a continuous act. He, he, he writes here in 1 Timothy 1.12, he says, speaking of his unworthiness to minister, uh, to be a minister of Christ, he says this, I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has what? Strengthened me, because he considered me faithful. No better example of this than when Paul shares his own source of strength in times of dire need. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, verse 17. Paul gives us where his source of strength comes from. He says, at my first offense... No one supported me, but all deserted me. May not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me, and in Dunamao, he strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. He's saying, be strong, Timothy. Continually be strengthened by the Lord Jesus Christ who gives abundant grace. Keep on being strengthened, he says. Draw that strength from the only divine agent that we can, and that is the grace of Christ Jesus. See, this grace was not a foreign thing to Timothy. It was not something he had to go seeking for. No, that, that grace from Christ Jesus already existed within him from the time he was called to salvation. That grace upon grace which the Lord bestowed upon Timothy is, is also the means used to sustain Timothy through his discouragement in ministry, to, to strengthen him during 
the, the trials he was facing in the church of Ephesus. And the reality is, it's the same grace which, that dwelled within Timothy. It's the same grace, uh, the, the same strengthening that resides in all who are in union with Christ. You know, perhaps you find yourselves in the same state that Timothy was in, discouraged, felt, feeling the hardships of, of ministry or life. You know, the severity of discouragement varies in, in each of our lives, right? You know, maybe you've been weakened by criticism you've received from unbelieving coworkers. Or maybe you, you, you hear it from family that you've shared the gospel with or friends that you've shared the gospel with. You know, perhaps that discouragement can even be felt within the walls of the local church as you serve in ministries. You know, many of you I know serve in some way in the children's ministries, whether that's in children's Sunday school or, or Awana. And you know very well as I do that it can be taxing to, to, to minister to those children week after week. I know because some of my own children are in those ministries. But the reality is, is that it can, it can feel like you're not making any sort of impact in that ministry. It can feel easy to just say, you know what, I'm not going to go this Sunday. I just don't feel like I'm really making any, any impact in these kids. They're so busy running around and they don't listen to me. It's easy to just throw in the towel and say, I'll find something else to do. See, whatever situation you find yourselves depleted and weakened in, Paul has given you that, that same hearty command that he gave to Timothy to, to go to the source of abundant grace and be strengthened by that grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is a vital thing for us to understand as Christians who have committed themselves to the Lord. To be effective in ministry, we must be strengthened each and every day from the fountain of grace, which is Christ. And praise God that it's him who sustains us and that it's not based on our own strength. First, the discipline of a disciple of Christ is we have to draw strength from Christ Jesus. But the second is we must disciple faithful saints. Look back at 2 Timothy 2 again. Paul says this in verse 2, he says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What exactly is Paul referring to when he mentions the things which you have heard from me? What, what, what things did Timothy hear from Paul? Well, the great thing is we don't have to look very far to, to understand what he meant mean by that. He says here in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes this. He says, retain the standard of sound words. If you 
highlight or underline your Bible, you can underline that. Sound words, he says, which you have heard from me, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He says, sound words. This is the thing that Timothy has heard from Paul. And it's the complete and errant richness word of God that he's been preaching. Paul's been preaching the the whole counsel of God during his mission ministry, and, and Timothy, his companion, has been there firsthand to witness it through it all. When Paul meets Timothy for the first time in Acts 16, he takes Timothy along with him for the work of ministry through cities such as the the Phrygian and Galatia, uh, and even to Troas. And we know that Timothy even accompanied Paul in the city of Corinth where Paul penned his two letters to the Thessalonian church. Countless times, Timothy must have witnessed the faithful preaching and teaching of his father in the faith. Paul even says in verse 2 that Timothy has heard his faithful teaching in the presence of many witnesses. I don't believe Paul here is necessarily referring to one single event here that Timothy heard him preaching. Uh, Rather, I think he's using that phrase as as a generalization to validate that Timothy has seen and heard Paul teach the gospel throughout his ministry on this earth. There's no question that Timothy was, was firsthand the witness of faithful preaching. And Paul is urging Timothy to, to do with that treasure that has been deposited to him. He, he's saying to now entrust that same treasure which you have heard, which you have been entrusted with. He says, take that same treasure to other faithful men. A Greek meaning for the word entrust means to set before someone, to, to lay it before a person. You know, I work here at the, at the church and uh, as the facilities director, as Victor mentioned, and in my office is a set of blueprints of this exact building, this chapel building that we're in today. Now, those blueprints are are useful as they lay out different things, such as the plumbing lines, electrical lines, dimensions, specs, uh, lots of information that's captured on those blueprints. Now, the the origin of those blueprints, they they resided with whoever the first facilities director was, and then for some time, they were then entrusted over to the next facilities director, and, and, and so on and so on. It just has been handed down and and passed on from director to director. And the prints are not just entrusted to any person. No, these these blueprints, they, they, they would not hold the same value if they were given to somebody who had no invested effort in this church. You know, those blueprints were given to anybody else in this city. They'd probably just throw it in the trash doesn't have any worth to them. No, the, the prints are entrusted to the person that would safe keep these prints. They, they would preserve them because 
of the value that they provided to the director of the church. I benefit greatly of those blueprints. Now, they're not always accurate, but they, they are a benefit. And that is exactly what Paul is commissioning Timothy to do here with the Scriptures. He's saying to, to take the blueprints of God's Word, which has, he has heard, and he's saying, Timothy, set this before other faithful men. Timothy is not to just entrust this treasure to any person. He says to, to set it before men who are faithful. Men who are faithful. These are men who have proven themselves to be trustworthy and reliable in character. Men who have shown a, des a great desire, a, a giftedness to teach, who had the ability to teach others. See, Paul understood that these faithful men would be the pillars of truth for generations to come, which is why Paul has deemed it uh, critical here, very vital, for their character to be that of faithful. And although Paul writes this with the intention to Timothy to, to train up elders and and leaders in the church, right? We can't dismiss the, the, the same principle applies to all believers. You know, you may not teach in a setting like this behind the pulpit to a, a crowd of people, but you all teach through the means of discipleship. When you and I spend time discipling others with the church, within the church body, we we are taking the truths that have been deposited to us and are setting those truths before the next generation to equip the saints for the war that continuously happens against the flesh's desires. And that truth which has been deposited to us is none other than the Word of God. Second Timothy 3.16 says this. It's a very well-known verse that I'm sure most of you all have memorized. But this is what, he, this is what Paul is trying to get at with, with Timothy. He's saying that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And for what purpose, he writes, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Teaching, reproof, correction, training, that's exactly what discipling consists of, isn't it? And we use the entrusted word for discipling so that the next generation of men and women would be adequate and, and equipped to do the same with the following generation of believers. That's how it's gone for centuries. Faithful men and women taking that deposit of the Word of God and entrusting it to those who are faithful for generation to generation and will continue on until our great Lord returns. 
So what disciplines must a disciple of Christ exercise? Well, we've seen that they draw strength from Christ. Second, we've seen they disciple faithful saints. The third now is that they dis- they're disciplined through difficulty. They're disciplined through difficulty. Verse 3 through 6. Paul gives three timeless examples to Timothy to consider amid his spiritual slump. The first example Paul gives is that of the soldier. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. He writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul says, suffer hardship with me. This compound verb that he uses means to bear evil treatment alongside someone. See, Timothy was not called to suffer for the faith alone. No, he he was called to suffer alongside his mentor in the faith. Paul was not going to ask of anything from Timothy that he was not willing to endure himself, and so Paul intends for his words to give way of encouragement to Timothy. But Paul doesn't stop there with his instruction to Timothy. He gives him the the model of what that looks like, a model of discipline with his first metaphor of a soldier. He says, suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The first thing that Paul establishes here for the soldier is their authoritative figure, their chief commanding officer. This commanding officer is the one who gives the orders by which a a soldier is to carry out. And as Christian soldiers, Paul says that Jesus is established as the commanding officer, the one whom we dedicate our service to. The one who permits us into the battle and has given us the the strategy for victory. And because that is true, because that Jesus is the commanding officer, then what kind of soldier does Christ have in his army? What are the characteristics of a soldier for Christ? You can see on the screen here, listed there are three different attributes of that, but the first is that they must be excellent. They must be excellent. Look back at the verse. Paul says, suffer as a good soldier. Mediocrity is unacceptable. Christ does not want us to give half efforts. No, he he wants his soldiers to, to serve with everything they have. You know, you may recall the story of Gideon's army found in Judges 7. I won't tell you to turn there, but most of you are familiar with that. And the instructions given to Gideon to sift through his 32,000 soldiers and to find really the the excellent soldiers, the good soldiers. And so a series of tests are set before them. The first is Gideon says to the man, whoever is afraid and trembling... Let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So two-thirds of his army leave. 
Only 10,000 remain at that time. And then the Lord tells Gideon that there's too, far too many remaining. So he says, uh, Gideon, you, you need to sift through this, these men again a second time. And so he does by testing them at the water. The men who lap the water with their hands to their mouth, they remain. But the men who kneeled to drink the water were sent home. And the men who lapped were only 300 men. You know, through the testing of Gideon's soldiers, God separated those who were fearful and undisciplined from those who were fearless and poised. He was trying to seek for men of excellence, men who were committed. Yes, soldiers of Christ today, you too are called to be excellent, giving your full efforts to the, the duties and responsibilities that Christ has set before you. Another characteristic of a soldier of Christ is that they remain focused. Verse 4 says that no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Soldiers do not get caught up in the turmoil and chaos that occurs around them in battle. They remain focused on the objective at hand. And that is the imagery that Paul is conveying to Timothy here, to, to not get caught up and, you know, don't get yourself weathed into the activities of life. Another way to say it is don't lose focus of the priorities of life. Don't let the day-to-day -day grind of, of work and relationships and finances you fill in the blank, whatever that is, he's saying don't let that occupy your mind all day. Be focused as a good soldier is focused. And for what purpose? Well, the third characteristic is ambitious. What is the purpose for a good soldier to suffer hardship with excellence and focus? Look at verse four, he says, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. The ambition of any true soldier of Christ should be and always be to please the commanding officer who enlisted us, to glorify the name of Jesus who called us to fight against the war of our flesh, to please our Lord with excellence, focus, and ambition. You know, as I thought about this particular text, what it meant to be soldier of Christ, I couldn't help but think about the children's nursery rhyme, the I'm in the Lord's army. Some of you may know that. And I'm not going to sing that, by the way. If you're not familiar with the song, the lyrics go something like this. It says, I may not, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never shoot at the enemy, but I am in the Lord's army. Such a, a simple nursery rhyme, but really the call for us to, to live as soldiers for Christ. So the first example of being disciplined through difficulty was that of the soldier, but now let's look at the, the one of the athlete. Verse five. It says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. 
See, athletes who participated in games at the Olympiad were required to train for a period of 10 months before they could ever enter into the arena to compete. Athletes were trained, uh, were, excuse me, athletes were then swear to swear an oath that they had uh, completed their full 10 month of training and upholding the rules was taken very serious in the ancient Olympic Games. There was, there was very serious uh, consequences to that. Usually it consisted of these men, a group of 10 men known as the, the Helan Odakai. Uh, they were kind of a cross between referees and, and committee members who were responsible for upholding the rules, organizing the games, maintaining the game standards, and even supervised training of the athletes during their 10th month period. These judges, you can see they're depicted on the left-hand side on, on a piece of pottery. These judges, with their long disciplinary rods, wanted to keep the games clean, to uh, keep the cheaters and bribers out of the games. And if athletes were discovered breaking any of the rules in their training in the games or uh, even if they were competing and were found cheating, they would receive discipline with the rod of the Helan Odakai. Now, for those who committed more serious offenses of cheating or even match-fixing, fines were imposed on those athletes and their trainers, and they were permanently removed from ever competing again in the Olympics. What they did with the money, it's quite interesting, they would raise all the money they raised from the fines, they would have these bronze statues that would be created and commissioned in the likeness of Zeus. And at the base of this statue, you can see that photo there on the right-hand side, that at the base of the statue, you would find engraved the name and city of the cheating athlete. So that embarrassment of their corruption would live on for generations. There's even some photos that you could go and see that inscription of the name and city where they were at. You see, not competing according to the rules had serious implications. And Paul reminds Timothy that the only way to win the prize, to, to win the wreath of victory, he says, is to operate within the rules. Cutting corners was not an option. If Timothy wanted to be effective in a ministry and intends to suffer hardship just as his mentor Paul did, he would need to compete according to the rules. The regimen that Timothy was to follow is the same regimen that believers today must practice. That, that disciplined regimen we would call the, the core essentials of the Christian life. They're intended to strengthen our devotion to the Lord Christ Jesus. What are those essentials? Well, they're worship, service in the church, prayer, fellowship, evangelism, Bible study. You know, as you sit here this evening, let me ask you this. How are you competing? Are you doing it so according to the rules? 
Do you have a, a regular practice in your life of the core essentials? If you're not competing as a disciplined athlete, then let these words from the epistle strengthen and motivate you the way Paul intended for it to motivate Timothy. First example of that discipline through, through difficulty was that of the soldier. Second was the athlete. The final metaphor Paul gives is that of the farmer. He says in verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. This example Paul gives of the farmer sets forth the, the habit or effort that the farmer has. And, and what is it? It's he's hard working. Timothy was to be successful in his ministry. He had to be dedicated and have an exceptional work ethic. See, things weren't going to just happen for Timothy if he chose to just sit around and be lazy, being inactive in service. No, if he chose to do that, it was going to certainly amount to a harder struggle that Timothy was already facing as he led in Ephesus. Timothy is to work like the farmer. You know, I'm not a farmer by any means, but every so often my wife and I would like to plant a, a garden in our backyard. And if you've ever planted a garden in Texas, you know it's grueling work. It's not easy. You know, you, you, you have to prepare the soil to receive the seeds, and, and that's backbreaking, trying to toil the, the ground and sweat and exhaustion as you shovel and turn the ground around in the heat of the sun. You know, and after you've done all that work, well, now you've got to go plant the seeds. And, and, you know, they make their way into the garden, but, but then as you start to see things bloom, you have to fend off the, the, the vermin and the insects that want to eat what you've begun to grow. And again, remember, we live in Texas, so it's always 100 degrees here, whether spring, summer, even fall, we're still experiencing lots of, lots of heat. But you see, after a few months of laboring in that garden, there's great excitement when you can collect the reward of your efforts as you pluck the produce from that garden. You know, we often would grow tomato plants, and I'd always go and check and move, move leaves out of the way. And if I saw that little red tomato growing, Man, what a, what a joy. All those months of toiling and putting in effort are worth that one little tomato. My kids will end up eating it, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a joy to see that. You know, year after year, farmers work and toil over their farms knowing that they face challenges with elements, with cultivating the land. And in some cases, they even had to deal with grass fires. See, that work is not for the faint of heart. It was true in ancient times, and it's still true today, that farmers who spend their time preparing and toiling over the crops during the season, they, they would often keep the first portion of their yield for themselves. It's a reward for their hardworking efforts. You know, if I can make a point 
Our world today looks drastically different than it did during the, the time that Paul wrote this epistle. But, you know, over the centuries, we've made some great advancements in, in industry and technology and so forth. But you know what is extraordinary to me is that God, in his infinite wisdom, allows these three timeless examples to still be a frame of reference for you and I today in this age. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these three examples to be disciplined in ministry amid hardship should resonate in your hearts. Be excellent. Be focused and ambitious for the Lord as a, as a good soldier to exercise within the rules that the Lord has established for his athletes to work hard unto the Lord as a farmer does for his first fruits. We've looked at three disciplines of a disciple of Christ already. We've seen that they draw strength from Christ Jesus. They disciple faithful saints, they're disciplined through difficulty, and finally we'll see that they discern all things with Scripture. Look at 2 Timothy 2.7. Paul concludes this, he says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul writes for Timothy to consider what Paul has just said in the previous verses. He, he wants these words to, to, to simmer in Timothy's mind as he is encouraged to, to refocus on the objective of ministry. Timothy needs to reflect on the practical implications of these metaphors in his own life. How Timothy needs to draw strength from Christ Jesus and the grace that he gives to, to disciple faithful men, to, to live amid hardship like a, like a soldier, like an athlete and a farmer. And if that was not enough to motivate Timothy, Paul writes a, a beautiful capstone to this passage and says, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What is exactly is that understanding that the Lord grants to the believer? What is that understanding that believers have? Well, the Greek translation for understanding is the word insight. A better term for, for use is, is discernment. In his book, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment from Tim Challies, he defines it this way, defines it this way. He says, uh, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. It's a task in which we attempt to see things as God sees them. Empowered by his spirit, they strive for and are given an understanding of what is pleasing to God and what is not. Discernment is, is governed by understanding and applying the Word of God to our lives. It's a discipline that is reserved and practiced for believers in Jesus Christ. Because one of the components to having discernment 
is you must have the Spirit dwelling within you. You know, what a great encouragement, Christian, that is for us. That when we find ourselves at the crossroads of life, albeit in ministry or, you know, uh, in work, you know, decisions of everyday life, whatever the, whatever the issue is in your life, isn't it a, a great joy that we can turn to the Lord who hears our prayers? And he gives us all understanding that he deems necessary. But you know, tonight, maybe you're sitting here and perhaps you, you're still sitting under the weight of your sin. You lived your, your life under your own understanding and you tried everything within your power to to, to free you from that slump. Know this, that you can never free yourself from the bondage that sin has you in. But there is a way out. There is a way out of that great slump that sinners find themselves in. And that way is through repentance of sin and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that what he has completed at the cross was enough. Let me plead with you. Don't leave here tonight without having Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't leave here this evening if you've not turned away from your sin and turned your eyes upon the, the, the heavenly feet of Christ. You know, decades later, after Steve Blass, after his career was over, an article was written on him where he was being interviewed and he shared that he had learned to throw strikes again by simply just playing catch with his grandchild. You know, such a, such a rudimentary thing, a, a basic thing like tossing a baseball to his grandson. It's what helped Blass learn to throw accurately again. He had to go back to the fundamentals to, to learn to throw again. He, he tried everything he could except for go back to what he knew. You know, in a way, that's, that's the final exhortation that Paul would give to his beloved son, Timothy. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, you, you, you need to quit trying all the different things that you've tried. Get back to the four disciplines which have made you effective in ministry. Draw strength from Christ. Disciple faithful saints. Discipline yourself as a, as a good soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Discern all things with Scripture. As we conclude our time tonight, I want us to consider a few implications that we can draw from this text. You know, when you find yourselves in a spiritual or, or ministry slump, what must you do? What must you do? How should these four imperatives be lived out in your life? Well, the first is we need to seek refuge in the grace of God 
who is the source of our strength. Seek refuge in the grace of God, the source of our strength. You can write down Ephesians 6.10. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says in his exhortation to bear the armor of God, and he writes in Ephesians 6.10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Seek the Lord. Find comfort in him who gives refuge and strength. Second implication is disciple those who have proven themselves faithful. You know, we must pray faithfully for those people in our lives who have a, a desire to be discipled. And that can be done in several ways. Some, you may have already gone through partners. Maybe you completed the partner's one-on-one discipleship. You've been the recipient of being discipled by someone. Well, now it's your turn. It's your turn to go and find those, the next generation, to, to find someone who has proven themselves to be faithful and, and take them through the program. Invest in the other lives that are here in the church. Get active, discipling others with the word. Third implication we can draw from this is live as a good soldier, obey the rules as an athlete, and work hard as the farmer for the glory of Christ. You know, may our final words be that of Paul's word, uh, Paul's words, rather, found in the last chapter of 2 Timothy. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. This is his, this is his, his last, Paul's last hurrah here, his last words. He, he, he writes here in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, he writes, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I pray that those are our last words. That we fought the good fight. That we've run run the race finished the course and have kept the faith. You know, it's not about how you start. It's not about how you're well you're doing today. It's about how you finish in this life. Live as a good soldier. Obey the rules as an athlete. Work hard as the farmer for the glory of Christ. And last, we'll look at read the scriptures, and pray as you discern through the hardships of life. See, the spirit that gives us regenerated hearts and and that sanctifies us is the same spirit that illuminates the word of God and, and, and gives us all understanding through the mysteries of God. Pray and find peace and rest from the spirit when you face tumultuous times. Turn to God's inerrant word. And may these pages continuously remind you and 
remind me to be disciplined disciples of Christ Jesus and commit ourselves to the mission of the church according to the wonderful will of our great God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your word. Lord, you are a a supreme God, a majestic God, Lord, a God who has given us salvation. And Lord, we can find ourselves often in, in times of trouble and discouragement and, and feel weary and, and, and anxious about, are we being effective in the mission of the church? Lord, I pray that you would refocus us, draw us back to the mission. Let us, let us remember, Lord, all that your son Christ has done on the cross. May that always continue to be our motivation on this life, to live according to your will for the glory of Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. We thank you and we praise you, give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.